Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. Back to The Baldface Truth with John Kanzano on 750 The Game. I love getting around the conference and talking to the experts who cover the programs in this conference. Mike Morell of the Seattle Times does a hell of a job covering Washington. He used to cover Notre Dame back in the day. I may ask him some about that as well. But he was out at, uh, he's been out at Washington's practices, and uh, I wanted to drag him onto this show, kicking and screaming. Mike, thank you for making time. I know you're busy. I appreciate it, John. How's it going? Going well, man. I've been I've been locked into your Twitter. You have been sort of you're not like live tweeting the practices, but you're giving some great insight into what's going on. Tell us what's happening at the quarterback position. Yeah, I mean it's kind of status quo from what we saw in the spring, where you've got a three way quarterback competition between Michael Penix Jr., Dylan Morris, and Sam Heward. And at least through the first week, week and a half, they're going to keep on giving uh, equal reps each day to uh, those three quarterbacks. Yesterday. It was Penix mostly with the starters today with Sam Heward. I think tomorrow will probably be Dylan Morris. I think they've got their first scrimmage next Saturday, Saturday the 13th, and they'll kind of go through that scrimmage and sort of assess where they're at and maybe make it a two-man race or, or see just kind of where things are. But, you know, it was an impressive day from Sam Heward today. I think Penix was really sharp yesterday, and it's just kind of a matter of who's going to take advantage of those opportunities before they kind of start to parse things and, and, and figure out where they want to go from here. Strengths and weaknesses, you often see quarterbacks who, you know, do things a little differently. Can you maybe, you know, parse out, you know, a strength that each of those guys has that, that gives them, that makes them good, I guess? Yeah, I mean, Michael Penix Jr., I think, is what you'd expect from a guy who's a two-time captain, has played big games in the Big Ten. I think he doesn't have the most otherworldly physical skills, but he understands what to do with the football. I think he, he's played in Kalen DeBoer's offense at Indiana in 2019. He knows, you know, how his offense works, who's going to be open. I think he reads defenses pretty well. He makes smart decisions. I think he's just a guy who understands the game. When you see Sam Heward today, it was today was really an example of, of what Sam Heward is at this point, where he made a really bad uh, interception where he kind of stared down a receiver and threw a pick. And then he comes back and he throws three, three deep touchdowns and has maybe his best day. And he's a guy who throws the deep ball really well. He's got a tremendous uh, arm when it comes to the deep ball. He has a great feel for that. But he still is, you know, making strides when it comes to understanding defenses, reading defenses, and kind of piecing together the mental part of the game. Dylan Morris, I think, is a better quarterback than what we saw last year where he was placed in a really difficult position in that offense. And I think he's a guy who has more mobility than people think. He can make every throw. He's got a bigger arm than you'd expect at his size. Um, but he doesn't throw the deep ball quite as well as a Sam Heward does. So I think all three of those guys, have strengths and weaknesses, and it's going to make for an interesting couple of weeks. Yeah, you know, the coaches will all talk about not wanting to pick a starter because they run the risk of somebody jumping in the portal. Who's the biggest flight risk here on this uh, in that trio? 
Uh, I think it's Sam Heward for sure. I, I just think personally, you know, Penix has already transferred once. He's got two years of eligibility left, but it's not likely to happen again. And if I had to, you know, handicap it, I think you'd say that Michael Penix has got to be the favorite to start, just given all the experience he's got at Indiana and the fact that he's played for Kalen DeBoer in the past. Um, Dylan Morris, you know, obviously was the starter last year, and you could see him going into the portal. But I think just knowing him the way I do, knowing some of his family, He's a guy who, who loves UW, who loves his current staff, who grew up around this program, and I just don't see him leaving. And while Heward comes from a similar background where obviously he's got the family ties to UW, being the five-star kid, you know, I, I think if he's not the guy this year, and even more so if he's the number three guy and he feels like he's buried, you could see a situation where he would start to look around. So obviously that's kind of the culture of football today. Um, and those last two guys have eligibility left when it comes to Morris and Heward. But with, with a five-star kid, who's had such big expectations. If Heward is number three and is kind of sitting on the sideline, doesn't see a pass to the field, that's when you might see a kid start to look at his opportunities elsewhere. Mike Farrell, Seattle Times, our guest. Uh, I was looking at Washington's schedule, and it, the conference part of it looks very favorable in that they don't have to play Utah and they don't have to play USC, so they skip those two teams. But where do you look on their schedule for – maybe the first opportunity to see what Washington's about. Is it is it week three against Michigan State, or can you learn something in the Kent State-Portland State games? Well, to be frank, I hope you don't learn that much in the Kent State games the way that we did a year ago. If, you, if you're right. learning a lot against Montana, it's probably not a good thing, and that's what I would feel about the Kent State game, even though that was a quality MAC team a year ago. But you'd hope that they'd run through those opponents, and then – you know, when you look at Michigan State Week 3, they've got a stretch there where it's home against Michigan State, home against Stanford, at UCLA, at Arizona State, kicking off Pac-12 play, where I think you have a feel for what kind of team this is. And, and is it – we've talked before about the chasm between ceiling and floor for this group. You know, is it a 6-6 six and six team? Is it an 8-4 team? Is it a team that could contend for a Pac-12 title? You won't know all those answers, you know, after Michigan State and Stanford and UCLA, but I think you'll have an idea of, of how improved this team is. Um, just going through that kind of stretch. The defensive side of the ball, it's been a strength. It was a strength under Jimmy Lake. Uh, how is that defensive unit looking so far in camp? It's hard to say. I think today was a little bit of a tough day because, like I said, uh, Sam Hewitt had a big day and had a couple uh, long touchdowns. I, I think it's a group that has a, an interesting mix of, of experience and newcomers. You don't have Trent McDuffie on the outside. You don't have Kyler Gordon. But the one thing with, with UW under Jimmy Lake was that they always recruited the defensive back position really well, and I think they've got guys that they're really excited about. I think the question with this group is, do you have the disruptive, game-changing, first-team, all-pack-12-type players? Um, they've got to prove that they've got those guys in the defensive line because they haven't had that for a number of years, as well as at the linebacker position. When you've got a guy like Eddie Olafosio who's going to miss probably at least half the season, you're bringing in transfers in Cam Bright and Chris Mole who are proven contributors, but, but you know, what's their, what's their ceiling? I think you've got a lot of, of defensive players here who you can see the potential in, but I, I don't know that they have the game changers, and that's something that we're going to have to wait and see. The player that you are most excited to see play games, you know, I, I think around the league, you know, I'm eager to see Bo Nix at Oregon. I'm, I'm eager to see the running back, Damian Martinez, at Oregon State. Who is it at Washington that you're eager to see play? I think when you look at this coaching change, who it affects the most is probably the wide receivers in terms of just putting them in positions to succeed. So from that perspective, the wide receivers here have a lot of potential. you got Roma Dunze, Jalen McMillan, two four-star guys, 
Jalen Polk, who did a lot at Texas Tech before coming as a transfer. Those are the positions that you feel like were probably held down in a less creative offense previously. Those are the positions that I'm really interested in. And then, of course, on, on defense, I feel like ZTF is a pretty obvious answer, a guy who I think had a pretty strong day today. I think their edges, on the whole, they feel quietly good about. A guy like Braylon Trice who has been sort of building the last couple of years. But ZTF is, is the question where he reached such you know stratospheric heights two years ago in a very small sample size. Is he that guy that can be overwhelming as a pass rusher, or was that somewhat of a mirage? I think that's something we're going to see one way or the other this fall. Give me an idea. You know, Around the conference, you, you check in with different fan bases, and they're feeling different things about – the you know USC UCLA defection and what it means you know I think Oregon State's fans are nervous that if the conference splintered altogether they would be left in something resembling the Mountain West but Washington's interesting to me and it's been quiet Mike what what's the feel there among Husky fans and and coaches and administrators that you've talked with I don't think there's as much of a panic as there was like as you know in in the moments and days and in weeks after that move it was a feeling like you had to find a lifeboat and i don't think it, it feels quite that way now but still from a UW perspective it's probably fairly similar to oregon where uh there's no question that they're going to end up somewhere in a power five you know scenario but but there is a large call from a lot of the fans that want to see them in the big 10 just to have that pathway potentially to the college football playoff, you know, even though it has been fairly unrealistic from a Pac-12 perspective to make the playoffs in recent years, that's still the stated standard at a place like UW. It's going to take probably a number of years to get there realistically, but but they want to have that pathway to a championship. So can they do that realistically in the Pac-12? I think that's obviously the valuable question from a revenue standpoint. Can they eventually find their way to the Big Ten? I think a lot of fans want that. And, of course, there's a segment of the fan base as well that wants to see them uphold a lot of the traditional ties that they have and continue to play Washington State every year. And you can't just do both. You know, obviously, if the Pac-12 stays together in its current form, you know, an undefeated team can make the playoff. But looking 5, 10, 15 years ahead, can you play the Apple Cup every year and also, you know, be a, a consistent playoff contender? That's going to be the question. Mike Varell, Seattle Times, is with us. All right. Uh, the million-dollar question, Kalen DeBoer, he's kind of flown under the radar a little bit. He got hired around the same time as Lincoln Riley and Dan Lanning at Oregon. And so it's been, you know, it's been understated. And I, even at Media Day, I, I really like the guy. He's solid. I think he's smart. But he's not, he's not, he's never going to be over the top. Is, is that a welcome act in Seattle? Will that raise money? Will that move the needle? I, I, I've thought about different coaches over the years and personality wise, is, is he a good fit there? I think he's a really good fit from a lot of standpoints. I, I think from what you're saying, I think he's very comfortable with that idea that he's not going to come in and steal the spotlight. I don't think he wants to. I don't think he has much interest in that, but everywhere he's gone as of late, he's taken teams that, that weren't very good the year before and turned them into something pretty quickly. When you talk about Fresno State, when he got there as an OC in 2017, they were 1-11 the year before. They were 10-4 and in his first season. He goes to Indiana as OC. I think they were 4-8 and the year before. They were 8-5 and the next year. Same thing as the head coach at Fresno. They were 4-8, and and he turned that team around. They won 10 games last year. So he's made quick turnarounds pretty much everywhere he's gone in the last couple stops. The question is, you know, is he going to sell tickets right away? I don't know that he has the personality where it's not similar, like you said, to a Lincoln Riley, where he's going to come in and rah-rah, and they're going to fill the stadium because of his personality. But I think you can also feel pretty confident that if they win games the way that he wants to, 
fans are going to show up. So I don't think he's got that personality where he really cares too much about trying to, to sell fans into the building. But if they play the way that they want to, and especially with the style of offense he runs, if, that, if they win games that way, I think you know, fans are going to buy in pretty quickly. Our research staff tells me that you're, you're a triplet. You have two sisters. How was that, man? What was that like? You got a heck of a staff. Uh, I don't know who you're paying for that, but that's, <laughs> that is absolutely true. Uh, I've gotten that question a lot, and it's hard to answer because I don't know what it's like not to be a triplet, so I can't compare the experience to anything else. But I, I enjoyed it. My sisters are both in the medical field making a lot more money than I probably am out west, but uh, they're saving lives, and I'm writing about you know defensive ends and in position competition. So we're all having our fun and in, in, in hopefully making some kind of a difference in our own ways. But uh, yeah, I, I I love them. I'm very close with them. But uh, it was a it was a fun upbringing for sure. It's funny because you got to think of it from your parents' standpoint because you know your parents are going to go look. We got two in the medical field, and then we got the sports writer, and that's balance for them. Like that job well done to there your you parents. Go. You know, so uh, yeah, hey, I, I have an older brother, too, and he also became a writer. So the, the men are artistic and the women are saving lives. I love I love that. Uh, Mike Varell with us, Seattle Times. Uh, you worked three seasons covering Notre Dame football for the South Bend Tribune. You're a beat reporter there. Notre Dame has been talked about a lot. Give some insight. You know, Notre Dame feels like it's very comfortable being independent. And I'm having a hard time seeing them in the Big Ten. How do you view the Notre Dame conundrum and what they might do? I don't think it's much of a conundrum like a lot of people have written unless they don't feel like they have access to the playoff. Because obviously when you go to Notre Dame, what they preach to you is we have one goal, one end point, and it's to win a national championship. They don't play in a conference. And there's a lot of pride in that. They don't care about a conference championship. They say that flatly. They care about getting into a playoff and playing for a national title. And if that's not the end goal, then all of a sudden they're kind of rudderless as a program. So I think for now they don't feel compelled to do much of anything. I think it's a program that takes a lot of pride in its independence and its ability to remain so. I think its fans take a lot of pride in that. And I think until they're forced off of that hill, they're not going to leave voluntarily. And it seems the way that things are trending with the next playoff, there's still going to be room for Notre Dame, you know, in, in that scenario. I think they're going to make plenty of money in the next TV deal, whether it's with NBC or anyone else. So I think really the the playoff would be the only factor that would force them out of independence. And right now it doesn't seem like that's imminent. So I wouldn't wait for Notre Dame to make a move if you're Washington or Oregon hoping for them to be sort of the, the first factor that allows you as far as an invitation to the Big Ten. Yeah, so as long as they can get to the playoff and they can get ample revenue uh, from NBC, and I think they will, uh, I think they stay independent. Uh, Mike, before I cut you loose, I was talking off the top of the show about mentors in my life. Uh, who are some of the mentors that helped you get to where you are? That's a great question. I, mean, I think, I think my, my parents were a big part of that. I, I think I started writing in a lot because of my older brother who's also a writer he's not a sports writer but he's someone who grew up reading a lot and writing a lot and I kind of took after him from a personality standpoint and and then going to the University of Missouri I was able to just kind of soak up a lot from a from a whole bunch of different writers and uh Wright Thompson and Seth Wickersham and, and guys that are older than me that would come back to campus and talk to us and and I think I was just able to sort of sit and observe um, and still try to do that. And I think I still have a lot of mentors that don't even know that they're mentors for me. So I've been very privileged to have a lot of people that I've been able to draw on. 
Mike, I appreciate you giving us your time and expertise. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. Read him at the Seattle Times website. Mike Varell, thank you. All right. Thanks, John. There he is. He's the best on that beat. Mike Varell, Seattle Times. Coming up, our big splash. Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up at 4 o'clock, we were going to get, uh, we're going to get Jed Collins, president of Washington State's NIL bid, the Cougar Collective. Jed Collins coming up at 4 o'clock. The collectives have figured out that this show's got some reach. Arizona State's Collective wanted on the show earlier in the week. Washington State's Collective heard that Arizona State's Collective was on and they want to be on the show. Uh, next week, uh, probably going to have Division Street and Oregon State's Collective on the program. Does Sean and I get any NIL money for that? <laughs> you guys want some NIL money? Yeah. Uh, what are we talking about? You want, like, Jamba Juice? Yeah, I'll take it, that. Is oh, that I love is, Jamba Juice. Look at how quickly you yeah. settle. You should have held oh, yeah, out. Sorry. I was going to walk it up. You both just went, yes, that's it. I'm like Kramer. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> like, that's it, Kramer. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Jamba Juice. You got it. All right. We'll, we'll get you some Jamba. Uh, but, yeah, NIL money? You can... That's a good thing. Where do you guys think, like, I've heard people talk about federal intervention on the NIL front. And then I've heard other people say, no, 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 the right way to do this is collective bargaining. Uh, have a players association for college players. What is your reaction to that? Uh, I just think it's going to be tough to institute either. I mean, I think it's so hard because the NIL money, the big money is going to the big-time players, but not everyone is getting a lot of money, correct? Mm -hmm. And so I think it's just going to be hard to – it's the same thing as like uh, just distribution rights, like getting the same amount of money for every school. Does every school deserve the same amount of money, or do the better schools do better, earn better money? So I, I I don't know, John. I really have no idea about that, but it's, I think it's going to be hard to do anything as a group with the whole NCAA. The problem, I think college, yeah, go ahead, Sean. college sports needs to find its version of the salary cap, like in professional sports, that keeps, you know, for more or less, the big markets from dominating. I know there's still issues in professional sports with that, with that topic, but, you know, they have at least salary caps that kind of even the playing field. It feels like college football doesn't really have that right now. So Texas and USC and Alabama, some of the schools that are some of the biggest brands in the country with the, you know, the most boosters, uh, the most high-profile boosters, it feels like they have an advantage right now. So I think there needs to be kind of the guidelines, kind of like the, the college version of a salary cap. Yeah, I think part of the one of the problems with the Players Association in a college setting is that you don't have the players there long enough. And the really good ones who this would most apply to are gone in like two years, one to two years in, you know, in cases of men's basketball and then football. So who's bargaining and who's – I guess it would be – you know, maybe in this era where you have like a kid like Jaden Grant who's in his seventh year in college, because of the pandemic and because of a medical redshirt, he's got extra eligibility and he's sticking around. But that's those cases are few and far between. So I'm kind of it's kind of interesting to me to kind of try to think about like who it is that is like who is the union, and and oh by the way. What percentage of those players or athletes that would be part of the college union are football players? 
you know, is it going to be a bunch of gymnasts and track and field athletes who are in college for four and five and six years who are making the rules and, and voting? And I, I don't know how happy the football players are going to be with that. So I think there's an issue with the union. But I also don't want to see our lawmakers who have bitter, bigger and better things to do than to deal with college football. I don't want to see them do that. This brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing that you need to know. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The Big Splash. Well, our Big Splash is coming out of the Big 12 Conference today. Ed Stewart, the former executive associate commissioner in the Big 12, is leaving that conference for a new job at USC. He spent 16 years in the Big 12 Conference, and he's the head football administrator for the conference, well-respected, former Nebraska football captain on the 94 national championship team. He's headed to USC, where he'll work for uh, Mike Bone, who knew him from his time working at Colorado. Uh, the Stewart is on the move, and the Big 12 is now looking for a new associate executive commissioner. Leave it here. More ahead. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Hey, sorry to interrupt the podcast, but... If you want to listen to more of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show, including more of this segment that you're listening to, make sure you subscribe on SoundCloud and iTunes to the Bald Face Truth Radio Show. Thanks for listening.